Several years ago, my wife and I were able to go to New York City. Great trip, loved it, lots of pictures. It kind of felt like a pilgrimage. I've seen so many movies, so many TV shows, um, where New York City was the setting. And I remember a landing into the airport, driving uh, into Manhattan and seeing the skyline. A skyline I've seen so many times, but never in person. And there was this just struck with the sense of like, it's actually real. This is a real place and I'm really there. And we were able to do a lot of things in New York City and it was all so exciting. Like we got to Times Square and great, what's next? And then we were able to go to Broadway and great, what's next? And then Statue of Liberty, great, what's next? So many things could have been there for so long, always enjoying what was next. Now, as disciples of Jesus Christ, our journey following Jesus is itself like a pilgrimage. Though we're not going to a place, and we're never really arriving Eugene Peterson described the journey of discipleship and following Jesus as a long obedience in the same direction. And in the same way, we can be wondering in our pilgrimage of faith, what's next? But often, in the because we're never arriving at a place and we're always on a journey, sometimes the, the desire for what's next can change from being a, a anticipation and expectation into more of just like monotonous boredom. So is this it? What's actually next? The Apostle Peter uh, writes to non-Jewish Christians, and he's writing to them because there's a threat of false teachers in their midst who are manipulating the message of Jesus for their own personal self-interests. But before addressing them, he first starts off by reminding these believers of the same old message that they've heard so many times before. And he readily admits that they already know this. They already established in this. And they might be tempted to think, okay, well, I get this. Well, what's next? But Peter reiterates the same old message because he knows that if Christians do take ownership of their everyday discipleship and the journey and pilgrimage of following Jesus, if they take ownership of this, there'll be a great benefit to their everyday life. But if Christians pass, and don't take action, and don't take ownership, they won't experience great benefit. It will be a huge burden. Today's message from 2 Peter chapter 1 is about intentional discipleship, one of the ways that a local church is engaged in the work of the Great Commission. Jesus, in giving the command to make disciples, he said, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That is the long pilgrimage of following Jesus. The long obedience in the same direction. It's the work of growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. See, this whole passage can really be summarized by two words. 
And it's our duty to take ownership of it. Keep growing. This is intentional discipleship. Keep growing. You may feel bored or maybe wondering what's next and the, the, the sheer and the shine that you once had seems to be stripped away. Keep growing. This passage shows us the possibility that enables us to grow and it shows us the obligations that we have. Keep growing. You can grow. You must grow. This is how God's word is going to guide us today. We can keep growing. Verse 1 to 4 shows us how we can keep growing. Let's look at verse 3 first. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellencies by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Keep growing you can grow. Verse 3 to 5 tells us, 3 to 4 tells us how we can grow. And really, it starts not by our own effort, but it's wholly through God's grace. When Peter talks about the divine power of God, he's talking about the uh, grace that God has given us, granting us all that we need to live a life that's pleasing to him. See, grace can be understood in two ways. The way I think we're most familiar with is like the Ephesians 2, 8, 9 grace. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may go boast. This aspect of grace is the unmerited favor of God. The other aspect of grace is the 2 Corinthians 12, 9 grace, where the Apostle Paul says, my gr- uh, here's from God, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. This aspect of grace is how God strengthens and resources his people so that they can live a life that's pleasing to him. That's what Peter is referring to here. The divine power that grants us all we need is his grace, the strength and resourcing that God gives us to live a life that's pleasing to him so that we can keep growing. Grace is the way that you will keep growing. And the resource, the strengthening that God has given us by his, through his grace here is because of the knowledge of God and because of the promises of God. Look at the text again. Verse 3, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. To know the God who has called us is to recognize where we've come from and who we are now in Christ. The grace of the knowledge of God is enough so you can keep growing. Do you know the God who has called you to his own glory and excellence? Do you remember what life was like before you were called? Do you have a sense of awe for who you have been made and how you have been transformed in his calling? Scripture says he's called us 
not by our own works or our own deeds, but according to his own mercy. Where we once were, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were children of wrath. We were enemies of God. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He called to us, like Jesus called to Lazarus out of the tomb. A decaying corpse cannot take off his own linens and walk out of the tomb. But the voice of God calling out to him awakened the dead man, regenerated him to new life, and he walked out. This is what the calling of God has done for us. By his calling, we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of our beloved son. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. And he redeemed us, made us new to be a people for his own possession, to say, you are mine, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us into his glory. This is the calling of God. It reminds us where we've come from, but who we now are. And this is necessary to live a life that's pleasing to God. You cannot grow in Christ unless you first know who you are in Christ. And out of the knowledge of God and our calling in him, we also have the grace of the promises of God. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Even I was, I was writing and preparing this message and reflecting on the promises of God, just as I was typing, just a sense of just peace and relief just settled on me, remembering the very great and precious promises of God. Do you know, Christian, the secured promises that you have in Christ? Let's think of a few of the promises I think of the promise of God's presence. God said that he would never leave us or forsake us. Even when you feel at your worst or you feel like you're just running away from God, there's nowhere that we can go to hide from him. I think of the promise of the security and stability of God's word. Jesus says, whoever builds his life, their life on his word is like a man who builds his house on a rock. The floods can come, the winds can come, but the house stands firm. I think about the promise of God's love. In Isaiah 54, the Lord says, The mountains may be removed, but my steadfast love and my covenant of peace will not be removed from you. Psalm 103 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. Christian, God loves you. Though there are many promises, I think there's one in particular that Peter has in mind here. Because he also speaks of a specific promise in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, where he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise is some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's speaking of the coming return of Jesus Christ. 
And some people will mock Christians saying that your hope in this promise is, is, is not worth keeping. Where is he? Jesus himself said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If we're not so, I would not have told you. And if I go, I will come again to take you to be with me. We have the promise that Christ is coming. And I think this is the promise that Peter has most in mind here. And we need the hope of Christ's return if we are going to be able to keep growing in Christ. We need to remember where we've come from, who we now are, but if we're going to grow, we need to remember where we're going. Because, man, in the struggle of growth, we feel the aching in our own heart, don't we? Is this actually possible? Can I actually change? Man, am I actually really going to be able to see real change so that I actually live the in the purity of life that I want to, so that I actually have the disciplines of habits like I want to, so that I'm actually like, gentle and not angry as I often am. We feel it in our own eyes. We see it in, our own, in the world around us. The ache and the frustration and the groan and will this ever make a difference, but the hope that Christ is coming back is assurance of where we're going and that Christ will make all things new. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Do you see how the knowledge of God and the promises of God are sufficient so that you can keep growing? It is the reminder of where we've come from, who we now are, and the assurance of where we're going. So it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get weary. But these gospel truths can keep you like an arrow fixed in a bow straight to the target. And it is grace that keeps that bow taut and can shoot you straight. But without this knowledge and without these promises, we won't be an arrow fixed in a bow. We'll be a twig on the ground. Keep growing. You can grow because of the grace of the knowledge of God because of the promise of Christ's return. So what are we aiming at? If we are going to be that arrow fixed in a bow, shooting our target, what is the aim? Well, the passage tells us here, look at verse four in the second half. It says, so that, here's the aim, through them, through the knowledge of God and the promises of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, the aim of growth is to become more like Jesus. Now, Peter's using very, um, sounds kind of weird language to us today, but it was very deliberately intentional for his readers. See, if he was speaking to a Jew, he might not call the, describe it as divine power. He might just simply call it as God's grace. If he was speaking to a Jew, he might not describe their growth as uh, becoming partakers of the divine image. He might just call it being holy as God is holy. But he's speaking to a non-Jewish audience, and he wants to relate to them in the context and with the language and the education that they have. But really, when he talks about becoming partakers of the divine nature, he's describing becoming like Jesus, becoming godly, becoming holy. Now I wonder, 
If we were to think about our culture and our age, what is the way that our culture and our generation and our society considers growth? Because I think a lot of people do want to grow in our time. And maybe you're here and you're skeptical to the faith or you're curiously questioning the claims of Christianity and you want to see change. You want to grow in your own life. I think there's been a shift in this generation from past generations of the type of growth that people are looking for. Because I think previous generations grew up with this idea that being happy, being whole, being fulfilled as a human, it would happen automatically once you filled out your bingo card, right? Okay, so um, uh, got into the right school, check. And uh, got the right job, check. And uh, married to the right person, check. And uh, still waiting for the dog or the right amount of the kids, but um, I've got the right house, check. Bingo, I'm happy now. But a lot of people are waking up, getting everything that they told would make them happy in life and realizing uh, I'm still incalculably discontent. So when generations nowadays, they're starting to recognize the hollowness of these pursuits, so we're starting to look for personal growth. Self-help, self-care, self-actualization, work-life balance, traveling the world, and we hope that in these ways we'll actually become whole through growing. I think this is a good and a healthy change, but I think there's a variable missing when we're looking for growth in this ways. See, we're wondering, what's the type of person that I need to become to become whole? But without a Christian worldview, the critical variable that many people miss is asking the question, what's the kind of world that I'm living in where I want to be whole? The text describes this world as a place that is corrupt because of deceitful desires. Let's understand what that means. I think when most people understand corruption these days, they think about like a politician, right? Someone who has like a, a sense of power. You might be laughing because you're thinking about a certain person. I'm not inferring anything about anyone. <laughs> we think about people who have positions of authority, but they don't use that to genuinely serve other people. They use it for their own self-interest. That's not the type of corruption that Peter is talking about. This same word corruption is also used other places in the New Testament to talk about like the human body and describe it as like perishable or mortal. I think a better word to describe this corruption is like spoiled. Uh, I love Mexican. Um, Julian was in Mexico this week. You had real authentic Mexican, but you're still feeling it now. <laughs> I love Mexican food. <laughs> Sorry, whoops, TMI. <sighs> Breathe. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I love that Chipotle charges you two extra for is guac, right, from avocados. Love avocados. Avocados are the most deceitful fruit, though, because you buy it, and it's not ripe, and you're waiting. But you can't see inside. It's got this like huge curtain of secrecy. So you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you think it's good, and you open it up, and it's spoiled. 
and there's this like fine line of like, I think it's okay, it's good, but then it, it's completely inedible anymore. This is the sense that Peter's describing for us to understand what our world is like. See, there is beauty and great goodness in the world. There's much to be enjoyed, but our world is spoiled because of sinful desire. Sinful desire is the motive of the heart that wants to live according to my rules, my design, my will, rather than under the preserving grace of God's design and God's will. Sinful desire has separated us from the preserving grace of God. So now when we seek for wholeness and fulfillment and happiness through our growth in this world, we're seeking it within something that has expired. And what, even whatever does look fresh and does look edible, when we go out and reach for it, we realize, oh, this is just a styrofoam decoration and can't actually satisfy me. Growth, real growth, is only possible when the motive of our heart is transformed from being sinful and opposed and separated from God's preserving grace to being united with God's preserving grace. And this is what Jesus Christ came to do. See, when Christ died on the cross, he allowed sin to corrupt and spoil him. Yet, in his resurrection, Christ proved that he has overcome the corrupting, perishing power of sin. And anyone who has believed in Christ is united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. So, Christian, if you've believed in Christ, you have made, been made new. You are united with him, and your desire can be for him and with him rather than to live separate from him. And if you're striving for growth and striving for wholeness, but you've never been able to find it, you can if your desires are made new through faith in Christ. So then the aim of growth isn't just for myself, for my self-help, for my self-care, for my peace of mind, to find self-actualization. The aim of growth isn't to become the best me, it's to become like Christ. And so that in him, I can become the fullness of what God wants me to be. You can grow, keep growing. But now here, Peter shifts from talking about the possibility that enables our growth to the obligations we have to grow. Keep growing. We can and we must. Let's read, let's skip down a few verses to the end, verse 12 to verse 15. You can see the kind of like urgency the eagerness that Peter has for them to get this next part, that they must grow. He says, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off my body will be soon 
as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. See, Peter believes that his, he will soon be martyred for the faith and that he will lose his life. But he is so passionate about their ability to grow that he wants them to get this like clockwork and remind them again, even though they already know it, so that when he's gone, his teaching won't be needed anymore for them to remember this. It'll just be saturated. in. The, it'll be the air that they breathe. He is so eager for them to get it. But you can bring a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Christian, you will only grow if you own your growth. Do you? Make every effort. Be all the more diligent. I know there are times in my own life where I don't take the ownership that I should for my growth. And I need to. You can grow. So you must grow. Peter outlines here stages of growth. It's really helpful, actually. He used, describes eight qualities that we need to add on top each, to each other for growth. And I want to make this as practical as possible. So I sought to see the similarities within these qualities. And I think that we can pinpoint where we are in our growth by asking five questions so that you can know where you are in growth and you can know then what to do next. So here are five questions that can help you pinpoint where you are in the progress of growth in a particular area of life. Here's the first question. Uh, do you believe that growth is possible? Faith is the prerequisite for growth. The faith he's referring to is the trust that the knowledge of God and the promises of God are enough. But a lot of Christians these days can be resigned that I've come as far as I can go. And that even though I still struggle with purity, even though I still struggle with my disciplines, even though I'm still angry and not kind, even though I still have conflict, hey, remember who wrote this? The guy who like, did the same thing over and over, boasting in himself, sticking his foot in his mouth, over and over and over again, Jesus was patient with him. The guy who denied Jesus three times, but was still forgiven and restored, that's the guy who wrote this. Christian, God's not done with you. Remember who you are in Christ. If the grace of God could change Peter, certainly God's grace can change you so you can keep growing. So if we have hope for growth, then the next question we can ask is, do you know where growth is particularly needed? This is virtue. To your faith, add virtue. Virtue, virtue describes a life that is honorable, a life that is deserving of praise, a life that is morally excellent. And virtue really describes kind of life in general, but you can't be virtuous in general if you're not virtuous in the particulars of your life. So I think every Christian should be able to identify an aspect of their character where growth is needed. Can you point to a specific area in your life where you need to grow? When I think about my own character right now, I'm right now trying to grow to, be, to have more courage, 
to be more stout-hearted because I realize that I can easily grow weary of doing good. But I know God's word calls me not to do that. So I'm trying to grow in that area. So then, if we know how or where we need to grow, then the third question we need to ask is, what does God want me to do? This is the knowledge phase to your faith, add virtue, add knowledge. We need to let God set the agenda for our growth. This is a phase of learning. God wants me to grow in courage, so then I need to learn from God's word what God's word commands me to do. If there's an area of growth that's needed for you, let God's word set the agenda. Look to the help of others to learn what God's word wants you to do. The fourth question you could ask is, what bad habits hinder my growth? This is the self-control and steadfastness phase, and I think this is probably the longest phase of growth for most of us. A person with self-control relies on the assistance of God's grace to recognize bad habits that hinders growth and exercise restraint against them. So when I get weary, I often get discouraged and don't want to address what's in my heart, so I'll just like watch entertainment to try and distract myself. I need to learn that that's a distraction and, res- and enact restraint, exercise restraint against that. A steadfast person then knows how they need to have self-control and then endures. When the temptation comes again, they don't let that sin cling closely. They lay aside all those weights. They endure in their self-control, knowing that they're still flesh and that they can still fall again. Growth hurts. It takes time. It hurts like the, the fire in a forge. But the forge of a fire has a purpose, to create something new out of what has been melted down, out of what has been refined. And that's what God wants to do to you. All of these things, the faith and the virtue and the knowledge and the self-control and the steadfastness, come allow the forge to create godliness. But then even once godliness is realized in your life, you're not at the end yet. Once you make a tool out of forged steel, you don't just put that tool up in a museum or leave it in your toolbox, you use it. What does God want to do with your godliness? Well, this is the next stage of our growth. We need to ask, who am I influencing? Because adding to our godliness requires brotherly love and affection. See, both are necessary to influence others. This is the work of disciple-making, that we are disciples who make disciples. What you have learned, you pass on to others as well. Brotherly affection is the, is the tender heart that you have to one another. But that itself isn't enough. We need to feel for others who are in their phases of growth and stages of growth and need help to grow. But feeling for them isn't enough. We need to act to help. And that's love self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Do you know where you are in these stages of growth? Do you know what you need to do next? Peter then gives a brief warning that we need to heed. There's encouragement though. If you take ownership There's great benefit for growth. See, if you step up, you'll find assurance. 
If you step up and these qualities are yours and increasing, you'll be effective in your Christian life. Your life will make a difference. If these qualities are yours and increasing, then you'll have assurance of the hope that is coming for us. When you step up, you will find assurance. But if you slack off, you will feel lost. Peter says that if you slack off and you're not looking to where you've come from, who you are and where you're going, you can be nearsighted and blind. You can lack the assurance of the promises that God has made for you, the calling that you have in Christ. It's like an engaged couple. They've got engaged, lots of planning to do for the wedding, and the time that they had for in dating isn't there as much anymore. And after a couple weeks of the only thing they're doing together is just planning, and then they've had all these arguments about just colors and flowers, and, and it feels like, like, why do I feel this way towards the person I'm going to marry? And then one, one of part, uh, person of the couple asks the other, just like, why do you love me? And then the other person remembers, just like, well, I'm marrying you, and here are all the reasons I love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But because they've become so nearsighted on these current issues of minor things that are going to be gone once the wedding is there, the feeling that they have to each other is lost. A Christian, if you slack off in your growth, it shouldn't be surprising that you've forgotten the love that God has for you or that your love has grown cold. You might have moved, but God hasn't. We need to remember again where we've come from, who we are, where we're going. Take ownership. You can keep growing. You must keep growing. Remember who you are. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been justified by faith. I have peace with God. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. And in this way, you can have great assurance of the life that is coming for you. And you can endure even in the struggle now. You can grow. You must grow. So Christian, keep growing. I heard a preacher once close a sermon with this story, and I thought it was fitting here. Uh, there's a small canal between the tip of North Africa and southern Spain that connects the Mediterranean Sea on the east to the Atlantic Ocean on the west. It's called the Strait of Gibraltar. And this was an important landmark for uh, the Spaniards and something that they adopted with a lot of national pride. Before Columbus found the Americas or discovered the Americas for, the, for Europe in 1492, at the Strait of Gibraltar, there was this monument that had these three Latin words, ne plus ultra. So when everyone went through the Strait of Gibraltar and only the only thing that was left in front of them was the Atlantic Ocean, they saw this monument that said, Nothing further, nor more beyond. After 1492, they realized that that was wrong. And eventually, Spain would adopt a new motto. And it would be so, become such a new net point of pride to them that they printed it on their coins. Instead of nothing further, the plus ultra, the new motto was plus ultra. 
more beyond. Which motto describes your current state of Christian growth? Nothing further or more beyond. We can grow. We must grow. So Christian, keep growing. Stand with me and we'll pray together.